Like many of you this past week, I couldn't help but reflect on what took place 14 years ago, September 11, 2001. Now, annually, you can turn on your history channel or any number of news channels and they'll do retrospectives about the terrorist attacks that hit the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and the plane that went down in Pennsylvania. And, and I, I reflect on that every year because it was such a monumentally painful time for us as a nation. And as somebody who spent some time in New York, who's you know, actually visibly been to the top of the old World Trade Centers and, and seen that, and I, I was particularly um, moved the last time I went to New York City and saw the Freedom Tower. I don't know how many of you have actually seen a really great picture, but I'll put one up for you. Uh, the Freedom Tower um, in New York City uh, is this beautiful not just big office building that is the new home of the World Trade Center, but it, it is filled with all sorts of symbolism, all sorts of patriotic components. There, there's, a, there's a really strange thing that's taken place now, and that is when I used to go to New York City, I would think, wow, what an amazing center of commerce and global you know, power of economics. And now I actually see this building from afar, and I think we live in a country where we will fight to defend freedom. And so now we have an actual piece, a building that is the tallest apparently in our country now by virtue of the spire at the top of it, that now doesn't simply just say, we got a lot of money here, aren't you impressed? But it carries with it a heft and a weight and a and a somber sort of joy and reminder, and hence its name, the Freedom Tower. I, I, I'm amazed because it reminds us all that suffering is awful but often yields things that are unattainable by other means. 9-11 produced the cultural unity that if you think, you know, it was as, it was as divisive and ugly politically before 9-11 as it is these days. We've just gotten far enough away from this painful moment as a culture that we have begun to kind of tear at each other once again. At that time, though, for a season after 9-11, it didn't matter what your political persuasion was, what your orientation was, what your nationality of origin was. It just didn't matter. We were all sharing in the common pain that we'd experienced. We were all there to help one another. And in some ways, it was, it was a really beautiful time. It's almost... Hard to say because thousands of people gave their lives to make that happen, but it really was a beautiful picture of what eternity will be like. Uh, a sense of community and connection and things that aren't really that important all of a sudden are central and important. It is an opportunity and was an opportunity for cultural introspection as well for the the beginning of the pointing out of people who were real heroes, people who were significant in the experience. Guys like Judy, uh, Rudy Giuliani or Todd Beamer, who was on the United flight that crashed in Pennsylvania, a host of others, including all of the law enforcement and fire department people who gave their lives. It, the stories of heroic action, people who stopped to help somebody and ended up losing their lives. It's an opportunity for us to see some things that we normally don't see. In, even in the midst of our lament 
about suffering and pain, we can see that good things come from the most difficult challenges. And this is in part what we're going to learn from our passage today. That Paul is saying to the believers in Corinth, it isn't something necessarily to avoid, that is, suffering. We pick up where we were last week in our passages. You know, this year we've been tracking our way through this letter, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And at the end of last week's message uh, came this verse of Scripture, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty one. To my shame, Paul said, I must say we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. And let me translate this in the words of Eugene Peterson, who wrote the really common vernacular translation of the Bible. And the way Eugene Peterson would paraphrase what Paul just said was, since you admire egomaniacs in the pulpit so much, let me try my hand at it. I love that. He says, it's crazy to talk this way, but I started, so I'm going to finish. And, now, and, and this really is the context for what Paul is saying. He, he, using the fool's argument, which was the argument of his opponents, he's saying he's more accomplished and has done more to advance the kingdom than the Corinthian false apostles. So effectively, Paul's saying, if you want to compare resumes, let's go ahead and throw down. But Paul's main point is that he purposefully doesn't depend on those things. What's foolish about the Corinthians is they're not getting it in any paradigm. The, the paradigm of who's done more for the kingdom of God or the fact that the kingdom of God functions, the, the humble are exalted and the exalted are humbled. Paul says in the first two verses of our passage today, he's referring to just how crazy it was that they, they didn't recognize the most obvious thing, which was the guys who were claiming to be these super apostles had really nothing on him. Are they Hebrews, Paul says in, he, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty two? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman here. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. It, it really does, and for the next two weeks we're going to look at suffering and, and what God is doing in and through suffering and difficulty and why Paul would say, I want you to pay attention to the sufferings in our lives. The first of two reasons for that today is this. Suffering is a means of God's grace. I know it sounds crazy, it certainly is uh, uh, against our nature to say this is a good suffering is a good thing. But as the scriptures will point out to us today, suffering is one of the primary ways that God brings about the things he wants in our lives. Good things. Anybody trying to lose weight knows that's true. Every day I turn down things. I come to church and I got to turn down those donuts in the lobby. It's killing me. I mean, you'd think you could come to church and get a break from that kind of temptation. <laughs> it's, it's suffering for a guy like me who's a carb addict. You know, I, I don't, but in the end, I'm going to be very svelte by the time my graduation pictures are taken in December. <laughs> Let's read the passage here, verses 24 through 28. Listen to Paul detail his sufferings. If you've never read these before, it's, it's pretty stark. 
Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. That's a fancy way of saying they whipped me 39 times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I have a joke there. It has something to do with my high school years, but I don't want to go there this morning. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So he lists all of these things to show that the life of a true apostle, the life of a Christian, is not going to be easy. As a matter of fact, it will be marked with trials. And before we dissect the main point here, I'm impressed by the love that the apostle Paul has for the churches. He plants, and I, and I believe that he finishes his list of sufferings here with a reference to the daily pressures he feels, the anxiety he feels for the churches. What that speaks to is that he actually loves them. Instead of being a superstar who considers himself distant from the people who have the privilege of sitting under his apostolic teaching, as was the case with the super apostles that he was somewhat mocking, Paul battled anxiety for the souls of the people that he loves. Any, any parent with a child, particularly a child who's wandering like the prodigal, knows this anxiety, knows the compulsion to pray for their children. Oh, Jesus, watch over my kids. Keep them safe. Oh, Jesus, work in their souls. And this is really the same yearning, the same longing, the same anxiety that Paul has for his spiritual children. And it's a love worth imitating. That said, suffering is a means of God's grace. It's not only part of the Christian life or part of the world we live in. It's one of the primary conduits for both our sanctification, which is a fancy word of saying, the development of our character so that it, we actually reflect the, 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 the traits, the character traits and the attributes of Christ but it also is one of the means of bringing about God's will in our lives. This is the way it is. We have a football coach at my alma mater who's in his first gig as a head coach at a, in a football program, and he gets agitated when people dare to question him. So he goes to these press conferences. Now, man, mind you, he makes millions of dollars a year. And then when people say, hey, this isn't, doesn't seem like it's working very well, he's like, you people are always bringing up negative things. And you'd think he would have understood that if you get into a gig where you're the coach of a major Division I program and you get $3 million, not everybody's going to come into the press conference and go, so how does it feel to be such a wonderful coach? I mean, there are actually going to be some difficult seasons. Well, this is sort of the, the foolishness that me and others enter into with life. We think, well, I want life to be perfect. I want it to go smoothly. I want no hassles whatsoever. And it's a very naive and immature perspective on the world. Not only is it nowhere near reality, it's, I mean, it's not even close to what any of our realities are, so you're kind of living in this dazed and confused state. 
But we're also, and this is what Paul is going to try to point out to us, is we're also denying an opportunity to see something great happen in our lives by fighting against it. It was true of Paul. It was suffering brought about things for the apostles who were all martyred. We are sitting here 2,000 years later walking through what these people said because they suffered, not because they lived like kings. In, in their moment of difficulty, there, there didn't seem to be a lot of purpose to it, but it, we have the vantage point of two millennium. We can say, look at what their, their sacrifice and their suffering has produced. It's the reality for all believers everywhere and every time, and anyone who tells you different is trying to sell you something. We live in a broken world, but our loving Father superintends to bring about His redemptive purposes in our lives through those things. I love this component of the gospel, and lately I've been sharing with a brother whose marriage is coming undone, that as difficult as it is to imagine, this is the challenge of the Christian life that we would be able to believe that people who are doing things to us that could validly, rightfully, justly be called wrong, but our sovereign God of grace continues to superintend and bring all these things to pass. This is peace. This is where the rubber hits the road. This is why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says, Take this cup of suffering from me, but yet not my will, but yours. Jesus had the capacity because of the intimacy he had with his father to say, this road doesn't look comfortable, but I'm going to trust you and walk down it. And think about that for a second. If Jesus, the exalted son of God, the savior to whom we sing and worship and will spend eternity doing so if you're a believer in Jesus, this Jesus got to his place by way of the hands of evil men. He didn't get to his exalted state through comfort. It took God superintending a group of people who beat him to death and crucified him on a cross. This is true for the Christian life. It doesn't mean we're masochistic and looking for pain. It simply means that the opportunity to grow, the opportunity to experience Jesus happens amidst suffering. R.C. Sproul, one of my professors, incidentally, back in the early 90s said this, when we suffer, we must trust that God knows what he is doing and that he works in and through the pain and afflictions of his people for his glory and their sanctification. Jesus' brother James took it one step further regarding suffering being a means of grace. It's actually the means by which God brings about Christ-like character in us and brings us closer to him. James, Jesus' brother, says this in James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking in anything. The testing of your faith is not like an exam you took in school. This is the trying and the testing that would take place when precious elements are purified, gold or stones. Uh, 
Recently, I've been interacting with some people, lots of people in a young church get engaged and have babies. Uh, it's just kind of the way it works. It's an exciting time. I'd much prefer that uh, to the alternative, which is having to do a lot of funerals. Weddings and babies are just wonderful and easy. But uh, all that to say, I mean, we're all in this together. So as I'm talking to these guys about their engagements, they all speak of, uh, you know, the, the, the process of getting a ring. And, you know, one of the first things that a young woman who gets engaged will do is kind of do that thing where they kind of show you the, hey, look here, you know. And, and you have an opportunity to kind of see what that looks like. But that's the finished product. The process of diamond mining is pretty intense. Have you ever seen a, a diamond, quote unquote, in the rough? I mean, a picture of what a piece of rock looks like. So if you look at the, the photo, you see that on the far left, you have a piece of junk that looks cruddy and dirty. What happens is in, in, in diamond mining, they, they take out big chunks of rock and then they crush these rocks to break them apart. And then they chemically treat them. It means they dump them in a lot of things, including muriatic acid, to burn off all of the impurities and crud. Then they actually put this raw, now but seemingly clean on the outside thing, on a, on a little vice, and then they, with the sharpest elements in the world, cut this thing. All for the purpose that they could then polish it and shine it up so that you could see its brilliance. So you could see something wonderful that you didn't see before. We are diamonds in the rough. That's what we are. As his children in this world, we're starting out a little rough around the edges, so to speak. But he wants to shave off edges. He wants to buff out smudges. He wants to fashion us in a way that his brilliance is seen in us. He will set you in just the place he wants so that his creative beauty can be seen in and through you. But the process to get to a place where we actually enjoy being that is one of suffering. If diamonds could speak when they were being treated with acid, they would say, ow. This is our life. Suffering is a means of God's grace. James, Jesus' brother, says, count it joy when it's happening to you. Quit fighting against it. Quit acting like it's not supposed to happen. It's a good thing because God is superintending to bring about something great. It's an opportunity for you to grow. Here's the second thing this morning. Suffering not only is a means of God's grace, it mandates deference to God. It mandates, in particular, deference to his glory. This is Paul's words in verses 29 through 33 of 2 Corinthians 11. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? And this is the line I think is critical. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who, he, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. One thing Paul wants you and I to see, and we are going to look at this in, in total next week in some pretty cool ways, 
is that our inability actually shows forth clearly the incredible ability of God as His Holy Spirit works in and through us. Paul would never have described himself as a great minister. He would never have described himself as an extraordinary preacher. But instead, he labors in this passage to paint himself an extraordinary suffering servant. Now, why would that be? Well, Jesus is who he's trying to point to. And there's no better way to do that. There's no better way to show off the suffering servant Jesus than with our lives sacrificially sacrificing and caring for and suffering in the same way. This is why Paul says he's a trustworthy apostle. It's why the other super quote-unquote apostles were told, you're not really, uh, they're not really the real deal. These, These people are using you. They are not serving you. Paul concludes something in this passage too. His discussion of all these things that might in and of themselves sound like he's bragging. I mean, oh, well, aren't you a super sufferer? But there's a really cool thing Paul does in this passage to remind everybody. This kind of reinforces or drives home the point. And that he, he says in conclusion of this passage that he was in Damascus going to be killed, but others had to help him by lowering him in a basket through a window in the wall and escaping. So you could say all these other things you might think, wow, well, aren't you the one who was at sea? And aren't you the one who was suffering in all these amazing ways? But what Paul finishes by saying is, you know, and there was a time where I had to just flee for my life. It's part of what I do too. I just run. And I couldn't even do it myself. They had to, I had to have people lower me in a basket. This wasn't something he was bragging about. This was something in part that he was saying, I can't do any of this without the help of other people. As we'll see in greater detail in next week's passage, Paul believes that lowering oneself is the key to being used by God to bring about his glory in the world. The exaltation of self will inevitably lead to one's end. This is the testimony of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, friends. If you're in the business of trying to use God to get your agenda done, Um, at some point, you're going to have to come face to face with the painful reality that that's not okay with him. That he wants to have relationship with you. He wants to love you and care for you. But ultimately, this is about exalting him and making him look beautiful. Because our greatest joys happen when we see our heroes. When we think about the people who did amazing things on 9-11. It gives us joy to celebrate what they've done. Those of us who are college football crazies, Saturday is a time of reflecting and looking at and talking about, did you see that play? And, And we find great joy in the exaltation of those who've done great things. And our greatest joy in this life is glorifying our creator who did the most amazing thing. He not only created us, He demonstrated his love for us in Christ. It isn't about his ego. It's about our joy. It's the greatest experience you're ever going to have to see God in his glory, to see God in his gracious kindness, 
his holiness, his, his power, all of that does is uh, once again reinforce how amazing it is that he's so merciful. Charles Spurgeon says, you will never glory in God till first of all God has killed your glorifying in yourself. In Romans 5, Paul wrote, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Once again, our takeaway in today's message is what it is virtually every week here at PRISM. And we are repetitive for a purpose because all of us, we need to be reminded that what this is about is knowing God and not using God to our ends. We are called to pursue the enjoyment of God and see life's difficulties as a means of grace to serve the purpose of us falling to our knees in prayer. In fact, according to Jesus' brother in James 4.3, many of us don't have what we need because we just don't ask for it. And this is why we, as a church, humbly submit to the notion that every month we have a prayer meeting. It's called Firestarter, third Friday night every, every month. Every four months, we have a day of prayer and fasting. We'll do one again next Friday. Starts with Firestarter, we'll finish uh, with a great dinner. We're going to watch a movie out here, so you're welcome to join us. We pray and we commit ourselves to praying because we know very well that, A, according to James 4, 3, some things God isn't going to give us unless we ask. And, and then secondly, B, uh, we, we all need to pray even if we in our flesh or in our minds think it's really not that important. Tim Keller says this, God often waits to give a blessing until you have prayed for it. Why? Good things that we do not ask for will usually be interpreted by our hearts as the fruit of our own wisdom and diligence. 25 years ago, I wanted to get engaged to Carolyn, but I didn't have the dough for a ring. I was uh, cutting lawns on the side while I was getting my first job in radio. Neither of those things pay well. And so I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do, and so I called my dad. Now, most of you have experiences with parents, and uh, some of you had experiences similar to mine. I had a dad who cared for me, who took care of all of my needs. But up until the time I moved out of my house, he wasn't what I would call extravagant with his financial contributions to my life. Now, I don't mean he didn't provide my meals and my tuition. It just wasn't, he wasn't throwing money. Hey, here's 50 for you. That changed almost immediately when I moved out. And so I would encourage you, if you're a single person living at home, things get better when you leave. All right, I, I, it, and they did for me. And, and I couldn't believe it because when I went to my dad, I said, listen, I, I get, I'm going to ask Carolyn to marry me, but I, I, I don't have money for a ring. My dad was like, are you kidding me? I will loan you the money. You can pay me back, no interest. Take as long as you want. And I thought, where have you been all my life? I had no idea that letting him participate in the process of me getting married would give him such joy. I can't wait till my son comes to me and says, I'm a little short, but I, I found somebody. See, he was so thrilled when he found out that I got to marry Carolyn 
that he was like, whatever we got to do to seal this up for my son, we're going to take care of it. Got to take out a second mortgage, whatever it is. This is a, you're way, way ahead of the game here, son. I'm in the same place, and, and I can't wait. See, this is what a father who loves his children is looking to do. And, and it was important that I ask him because 25 years later, I'm still talking about how great my dad was to me. And it gives me joy to reflect on his kindness to me. This is what God is after for us. He, he wants you to be grateful because he wants you to see how great and how loving he is. You may be suffering right now, but I can assure you from scripture that God is allowing this. He's superintending it so that you and I would call out to him and in the process get to know him and enjoy him and find incredible joy in seeing just how generous and gracious our Father is. Let us pray. Our Father, we're humbled that you're as good as you are. We have no right to just stand here and demand that you be nice to us. Uh, what's exciting to me, Father, is that you, uh, you're both so amazingly holy and perfect and ultra-patient. You're powerful and, and majestic and at the same time tender. And we don't want to take away from your holiness and our unholiness out of fear of what that means. It only reiterates and, and even brings more glory to the idea that you expressed yourself fully in the person of Jesus, that you were a, a magnificently perfect, holy, powerful God, and yet you condescended to be with people who were broken and fallen. So on that basis, we come to you humbly, thankfully, and ask that you continue to use the things in our lives to draw us close to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.